Hello and welcome to Stowe Talks, a podcast designed to support people going through relationship breakdown and all of the challenges this brings. I'm Matthew Taylor. And I'm Lisa Gatchell, family lawyers at Stowe Family Law. And today we are going to be discussing where do I start with the aim of providing a bit of a beginner's guide to divorce. And I guess everyone's a beginner with divorce. Well, most people, we don't get too many people going through this more than once. It happens. But I think this is a real back to basic session because mm-hmm. um, it's confusing. It's difficult. It's complicated. If I had a penny for every client who said, I never thought I'd be going through this. And rightly, I would you know, probably wouldn't be working as a divorce lawyer anymore. So, um, you know, what's what, what's your ideas for the best sort of starting point, Lisa? You know, someone has either decided they want to end their marriage or someone has been told by their spouse that they want to end their marriage. You know, what would you, what would be the first things that you'd be advising people to do in that situation? I hate to state what everybody's going to say, well, you're bound to say this because you're a lawyer. But I think my first port of call would be to speak to a specialist family lawyer to get some initial advice just to what your options are, what you need to be considering, timeframes, costs, etc. So I'm not suggesting that you have to instruct a lawyer and go gung-ho into proceedings and start issuing divorce, but just get some initial advice. I think one of the worst things that people can do is potentially just start Googling. Um, it's a bit like, you know, if you've got a headache and you start putting headache into yeah. Google, all of a sudden you've got brain tumour and cancer and all sorts. Um, and I think it can be the same with with divorce. It's a big topic. So if you put divorce into Google, you are going to get about hundreds of thousands of posts and some will be um, relevant and some won't be relevant. And some will be from this jurisdiction, some will be from other jurisdictions. It's really hard then. It can feel quite overwhelming. So just, yeah, just an initial an initial appointment, I think, can provide some clarity, provide you with your next steps and just give you some options, even if you decide, actually, I'm not ready for this at the moment. Yeah. I think it can be really useful before you make the decision. Mm -hmm. Knowing what the situation is going to be like if you do press go on making a divorce application. You know, I think a good family lawyer would advise you to think very carefully. You know, I've had couples, I'm sure you're probably saying, who've reconciled partway through divorce proceedings. So it's not permanent. But generally, you know, once you start the ball rolling, I think people find it difficult to stop. And I think the nature of the process is once you say you want the divorce, it's quite often quite hard for people to go back on that. So, you know, really being sure about what you want to do. And there's certain forms of counselling that divorce coaches can do, discernment counselling to help you decide whether it's the right option for you. Um, What do you think about, so someone's thinking about getting advice, but maybe don't feel, it can be quite intimidating to speak to lawyers. Frankly, no one wants to speak to lawyers and I can't blame them. Um, um, So what if someone's thinking, well, I don't really want to do that, but you know what? I've got a couple of friends who've been through a divorce. You know, if you're having conversations with your friends about it, you know, does that help? Does that hinder? I mean, what's your views on that? The problem that we have is that other than the very straightforward divorce process, which we'll come on to, um, when we're talking about children's issues or we're talking about finances, we have a massive discretionary system. So just because Joe blogs down the street or your best friend or your neighbor or your family member had a divorce and the result of their divorce was X, doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen in your circumstances. So I think, you know, friends are great. Friends and family members are there and you should, you know, build your team around you, have them for support. But I wouldn't necessarily be going to them for legal advice and I wouldn't necessarily be comparing your situation to theirs because there will be so many differences. Yeah, you can't expect you to have an identical divorce to really anyone else. 
it's a very, and we'll perhaps talk about this in a little bit, but when you're sorting out the finances, when you're sorting out children, it's a very discretionary area of law. So what there's not always even one right answer. There might be a lot of wrong answers, but there's not necessarily one right answer. And, and what goes on in, in, in your marriage is going to be different from anyone else's and what goes on in your divorce is going to be different from um, from you know a lot of other people. But you touched on there the actual kind of process of ending the marriage, the, the actual divorce itself. So should we just start with with that, because that's the thing that everyone thinks about when they're thinking about divorce without necessarily leaping into stuff about children and finances. So perhaps we should set out the divorce, because obviously the system in April 2022, we had a big change to the divorce laws. And now we have a completely new system, don't we? Yeah, we do. So they changed all of the terminology um, with the intention being that it would be more straightforward because we were using Latin phrases such as decree nice and decree absolute. Although I don't know if you've had this issue, Matt, but I had a client on the phone today who said she actually found it quite confusing because final order, and I'll come on to what that is in a minute, and financial order sound very similar. So it was then the differentiation between the two two separate sets of proceedings then was slightly confusing. So I don't think that was the intention behind it. The intention behind it was to make everything a little bit more straightforward. So they changed some of the language. And what they also did was get rid of the fault elements for a divorce. So previously, you would have had to have been separated for two years, five years, um, or you would have needed to issue one unreasonable behaviour or adultery. And it was genuinely felt that by starting off divorce proceedings with allegations of behaviour or adultery made it then very difficult to start discussing finances or children in an amicable way. So that was the intention behind it was to remove it. So what we now have is a application process whereby you're basically saying to the court that the marriage has broken down irretrievably and you don't have to provide any further information as to why that was or put blame on either party. And I do think a nice change in the divorce procedure now is that parties can do the application jointly. So that's another change. So you can still do it in the kind of um, one person applying and the other person being the respondent, but you do now have the option to do that application jointly. The application can be done online via the um, court website. And I think it's quite a user-friendly form to do these days, whereby it gives you kind of one question at a time and then it takes you through to the next relevant um, question, depending on your answer. So you submit your application to court. There's a court fee that you have to pay, which, you know, at the time of recording, this is £593. And once your application's been submitted and the other person has responded, you then have to wait 20 weeks. So it's it's a reconciliation period, I suppose, in, this, in the same way as the old proceedings had a reconciliation period. And you wait 20 weeks and then you can apply for your conditional order. So your conditional order is the same as the old decree nisi, and it effectively means that the court has decided that you are eligible for a divorce, but it hasn't yet made it final. And once you have your conditional order, when we're talking about things like finances, it then opens the, opens the door for you to be able to um, ask the court to make final orders in relation to financial settlement. So it's quite important in that respect. And then six weeks after your conditional order, you can apply for your final order, And that's the point at which the marriage is officially dissolved. I suppose, Matt, are there any... So somebody doing this on their own, so they've decided Mm -hmm. they're just going to issue the proceedings on their own. What things do they need to bear in mind with regards to those applications for conditional order? And I suppose, more importantly, the final order. Yeah, it's, it's really important in most cases to wait on the final order. When the court makes the conditional order, as Lisa says, it can then consider a financial order, normally by consent. So you get conditional order and consent order, which is COCO, so 
following it, which really uh, doesn't help with all my notes now. When I write CO, I can't remember what I've meant, conditional order or consent order. So that's like the final order point you mentioned before. When we're acting for clients and trying to sort their finances out, we will usually advise them not to apply for a final order of divorce until the finances are sorted. So the temptation is to, once you've got your conditional order, everyone says, right, well, I can file my financial order now, can't I? Um, or I can apply, sorry, you get six weeks in a day and then you can file your, uh, you can apply for your final order and that's the divorce complete. We advise against doing that because it can create, there's a bit of a, a window of, danger effectively in terms of your rights on divorce if you don't have a financial order by the time you apply for a final order and you divorce then it's very morbid but it's all about death and if one of you were to die you would then be a widow or a widower if you are not divorced so you would take remain married or you sort of the finances and then you you're a widow or a widower as a widow or a widower you potentially have additional protections uh, financially specifically in relation to pensions. So the widow's rights and survivor rights on pensions tend to be more generous. If you have completed your divorce and you are no longer married and you don't have a final order setting out what happens to your finances, it can leave you vulnerable. It can mean that rights under pensions can be completely lost as the pension effectively falls away unless there's any survivorship mm -hmm. provisions or those benefits can go to a new partner or children and you can lose out on what can be really valuable resources. Now, it's not the same in every case. In certain cases, it, it can be fine to go ahead with the financial, uh, the final order without having a financial order. But it's a really dangerous thing and it's very easy to fall into those pitfalls. And it feels like you've already waited probably, what, eight, nine months by the time the whole process has gone through and you've got, you know, there's lots of inbuilt waiting periods and people are itching to get on with things. Particularly if, you know, people have found new partners and want to move on with your life. But there's, re there's real potential risk and danger there. So we would always almost advise people to wait to get your final order of divorce until the finances are sorted. Let's say that you've, you know, you're embarking, you're about to embark on the process and you know what things look like in terms of the legalities of the divorce now. You need to start thinking about those other aspects, whether it's from, you know, where do you live in the meantime to what's going to the long term outcome going to look for me? What's going to happen with the children? You've decided to make that first appointment with a lawyer, as you said, Lisa. How do you prep for that first meeting? You know, what should you expect going into your first ever chat with a lawyer about your divorce, dealing with something that's really raw, really difficult to, you know, prepare yourself for? What do you what are the things you need to think about? Yeah, I mean. First of all, that meeting can also look very different. So there's different ways in which that meeting can take place, particularly since COVID. So you may well be that you're having a video consultation. It may be a telephone call or it may be that you're coming into the office. Um, so how you prep might change slightly depending on how you're doing that. Um, but certainly, I think sitting down and first of all, list of questions. I love it when a client brings a list of questions. And what we tend to do is leave the questions until the end of the meeting and then we just run through, you know, have we ticked off? Have we dealt with everything that you were thinking about? Because you you often will have all of these questions running around in your head. And actually, when you're sitting there with the lawyer and perhaps you're an hour into the meeting, sometimes the conversation might have taken a different turn, etc. And, you know, you're paying for the meeting, let's be honest. Um, so we want to make sure that all of the, the questions that you've got are answered. So sit down, think about a list of questions that you've got. The second thing is that you're likely to be asked for certain pieces of information. So if you can just get an idea, I'm not asking for exact figures of the amounts of money that you've got in every single bank account. But if you can give us um, names, addresses, dates of birth, children's names, children's dates of birth, you know, when you got married, when you separated, 
and rough ideas as to values of properties, etc. It really helps us to build a picture um, for when we're giving you the advice. And, and other than that, there's not a huge amount, I think, that you can you can prep before the meeting because it is about just working out in your own mind what it is that you want to get out of it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Is that I think um, people feel they need to be prepared and need to have every detail. And actually, it's, re- it's a lot to take in. And I think people probably underestimate the amount that they have to take in the first meeting and just having a general chat. And I think the most important thing in the first meeting, if you can get an indication of the legal process, you know, that's sort of, you should be able to get that. Are you going to get any idea of the outcome? Depends on your case, depends how much you know. And lots of people just don't have any clue about their finances. You know, maybe their spouse has control of everything, so they're not able to do that. What you absolutely have to get is a feel for whether that lawyer is the right person for you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's absolutely key. I'm not the right lawyer for everyone. You know, some people just won't warm to me. I, I know you find that hard to believe, Lisa, but, you know, it doesn't. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's really important having that personal connection. And I'm permanently staggered at the number of clients who don't shop around for a divorce lawyer. And I probably shouldn't say this as a divorce lawyer who, who you know, I need to have clients, you know, for, 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 to keep busy and for, for the business. But, um I think it's really important that you do speak to a couple of divorce lawyers. You might get different opinions. You might get the same opinion, but you need to feel comfortable with the person who's dealing with your case that they're dealing with it in the right way. So I'll often finish meetings saying, you know, if it's an initial call or it's an initial appointment, saying, you know, go away and think about things. You need to take your time. You need to reflect. But maybe go and speak to another lawyer and see. And I think it's that's that's a really important thing because that personal connection, I think, uh, hopefully you'd agree with me, is that, you know, the, the cases that you probably do your best work on are the ones where you and your client are working together yeah 100% it is about you know relationship building because ultimately we're working together you know this isn't a conveyancing transaction that's likely to be over in eight weeks you know we quite often have clients where six months is probably a minimum for divorces Mm. but it's quite regularly between six to 18 months and that's that's a huge amount of time that we'll end up communicating with each other. So yeah, it does help. And from a trust perspective, you know, there's no point in you instructing somebody if you don't, if you're not going to trust the advice that they're giving, because you're effectively wasting your money in those circumstances. That's really important. Is someone that you feel that you can relate to, someone who's someone's explaining things clearly to you. You don't want to come out of a first appointment feeling more confused about the process than you, than you did before. There's something's not worked there. It may be that you've got certain expectations and certain things that you want to achieve. You know, you may find that the the solicitor isn't meeting those expectations or that the indications aren't what you'd hope for. Now, that can be a good thing because I don't think we're paid to tell clients what they want to hear. We're paid to give honest, frank advice. And I think if a, if a lawyer is telling you what you want to hear, I'd be very suspicious. Um, you know, if you are confronted with something or say, well, I don't think you're going to achieve what you want to achieve because of this. It's probably a sign that the lawyer is being honest with you, which is actually going to work out better for you. It's going to reduce costs and make it more likely that you can settle things. So I think these are some things to to really look at in terms of selecting your lawyer. Um, What about a situation where someone has already had a few discussions with their spouse about a potential outcome? You know, they come to you and say, we talked about this split of things. You know, if, if someone's wanting to have those discussions, hopefully they're amicable, hopefully. And that can really help, you know, if you can maintain that good relationship with, with the person you're divorcing. Um, what sort of things should people look out for in those discussions, Lisa? What can be helpful and what can be unhelpful? Ultimately, you know, we want parties to agree. 
we want them to agree. We want it to be as smooth as possible. And so if you are able to sit around the kitchen table with your ex-partner and start to hash out your finances, then absolutely brilliant. I think the one thing to make sure is that just that you're getting advice. I mean, from our perspective, the only problems that we find is when parties come to us with agreements that they've reached. Um, and one that springs to mind is... Um, a lump sum to offset child maintenance. Um, you know, we've sat down, this is what we've agreed. We're both really happy with it. Rather than pay me maintenance for the next 10 years, he's going to give me £50,000. Completely unable to do that legally. <laughs> Can't oust the jurisdiction of the child maintenance agency. And it may well be that you've sat down and you've, you know, these conversations have taken quite some time. It's taken a lot of negotiating. And actually, again, coming back to if you'd had some advice at the beginning as to, you know, these are the kind of things I'm thinking about that could have resolved that before you got into those discussions. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it just comes back to it's fine to have those those meetings, but you need to have it with a background of legal advice so that you know what's possible within a financial order and that you know that what you're discussing is fair because, there are some people that are incredibly confident and they can sit across from their partner and tell them, I will absolutely get 70% of these assets. Yep. And so the partner's like, oh, okay, yeah, no, yeah, that seems fair. And then they bring it to us and we're like, absolutely no way. <laughs> you know, that's not fair. That's not what the courts are going to do. So, yeah, I think it is. it just comes down to, again, you know, it's fine to have those discussions. But first of all, make sure you've got the advice. And secondly, make sure that any agreement that you reach is drafted into a financial order and approved by the court because otherwise you you know whilst you may have reached an agreement your financial claims are still open so it leaves it open that either of you can change your mind further down the line and actually once a couple of years have happened if asset values have changed if parties are in new relationships things can get that much messier so, you know, if you've reached an agreement for the sake of having that financial, you know, the cost of having that financial order drafted is actually really important because that's the part that then severs your financial ties and prevents those future claims. Yeah, absolutely. That's really vital. There's no long stop date on financial claims on divorce. They go on indefinitely and, you know, things would change over time, but you do want to have that. Um, I think there's my piece of advice to someone who's having the kitchen table discussion is make it clear that you're quite happy to discuss. It's really helpful, really important. You know, you should make it also make it clear that I'm not going to reach a final agreement without taking some legal advice so that you can go away having said, okay, broadly, we're looking at a split that's like this. How many times have you had a case where someone comes in and says, here's what we've agreed to do. And then you say, um, what about the pensions? And they go, oh, I didn't think about the pensions or, oh, I'm not making a claim against pensions. And then you might explain the law about pensions, which causes them to reconsider. Now, if you think about their spouse perspective, um, when they then go back to the discussions and they are told, hang on, I thought we had an agreement that we both felt was fair. Now you've spoken to a lawyer and actually you want to undo this agreement. That can cause some issues because one mm -hmm. of them feels that, no, 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 we have this agreement, we should stick to it. And the other says, well, I didn't reach it with the benefit of legal advice. And emotionally, I can understand where both are coming from. So I think having those discussions with the knowledge that both of you should then go and take your own legal advice about the agreement is probably the best way forward. But if you can retain those lines of communication, it helps because most cases settle. Whether you end up in court, whether you end up in mediation, whether you end up doing things through solicitors, most cases do settle. And you need to have that trust to do so. So if you start on the process where you've locked into a certain course of action and then have to reverse course on that, that can cause some problems, I think. 
The other thing I think to bear in mind in it's just come to me with the um, kitchen table is obviously financial disclosure. So financial information, particularly if one of you controlled the finances, if you're going to be having discussions about how they should be split between you, you need to make sure that you both understand what those finances are. And if you do struggle with that, by all means, reach out to an accountant or a financial advisor, you know, make sure that you understand what the assets are that you're discussing. Yeah, absolutely. And what about with children then? So we talked about finances a little bit about how that works without getting too much into the weeds. But when you're having these discussions about about children, you got someone coming in and saying, oh, you know, um, I, I'm a dad and you know, my wife says, well, I'm going to be seeing the kids every other weekend and, uh, and that's it. Take, take that away. You know, what's, wh- what advice do you give in those meetings? What things should people be thinking about in terms of their approach to the children when someone's saying, they say it should be every other weekend. I want 50-50. You know, how do those discussions tend to go for you? Yeah. I mean, we all have different family makeups, don't we? So it's there is no, again, there's no black and white. I think people get very hung up on the alternate weekend and once in the week uh, arrangement. And yes, whilst that can be quite a popular arrangement, predominantly because it works for lots of families, actually, there's nothing set in stone to say that that needs to be done, although that's going to work for your family. And you know, the amount of contact can between the parties can really differ quite significantly from completely shared care, um, which might be on sort of a, is it 422 or 322 arrangement to alternate weeks to the alternate weekends to just once a week. Um, So, you know, there is a vast look at the options. And I think it's about looking at it again from the children's perspective as well. So, you know, the children have a right to relationship with both of their parents. What's practical in your relationship? So if one of you is working full time and the other party is working part time, is it practical to have 50-50 care? You know, how would that work? Who would the children be looked after before and after school and, and all the rest of it? Or can you flex? You know, can you make that work? Um, so I think with children, it very much comes down to the, the practicalities often. And then, you know, being open to the other party's points of view. And if you don't agree on something, perhaps ask them to clarify why it is that they want it that way. See if you could sort of really dig down to it because that may then help you to, to resolve that niggle. Yeah, that, that's completely accurate, I think. I, I'd absolutely agree. And I think the key thing that you said there was it's from the children's perspective. That's how we look at everything. That's how the court looks at everything. You know, it's not you have a right to 50% of the time with your children. It's children have a right to a relationship with both parents. And that can look completely different. A lot of it will be about logistics and who's working when. What's really important is maintaining some form of status quo for children mm-hmm. because they're going through this huge upheaval. The mum and the dad are separating. You know, they might be moving out of their house. Well, at least one parent is likely to be moving out of the house, if not both. You want to maintain a sort of level of consistency. And if you have a consistent pattern where there is a primary carer uh, and perhaps the, the other parent has been less involved, there's likely to be some wish of the court to continue that because that's something that's worked during the marriage. It probably continues to work. Now, the logistics will impact that. You know, it can be very difficult, specifically if you're representing people who work abroad. You've got people who are in the armed forces or, you know, perhaps they work in the oil industry and they're out working on oil rigs for four weeks at a time. Things can be very, very different, but it's looking at what is best from the children. And again, not getting too wedded I think, to a certain proposal because, you know, your mate down the pub has said that's what they do with their kids. And, you know, there, there's a huge amount of flexibility that you need to have there. But explore being prepared in this first meeting, come back to this first meeting and explore the options and try and uh, if you can't 
explain to your solicitor why you think a certain agreement works best for the children, then they're unlikely to be able to explain that adequately to the court or to your spouse. So it's about being clear about what the benefit is to the children. The benefit is to you and the benefit is to your, you know, your spouse because they might need to do X, Y, and Z for their work, or, or they may have other care and commitments. They may be elderly parents involved. There's all sorts of things. So I think a, a degree of flexibility is really important. Right? Yeah. I think it's accepting change as well. It's, it's not going to look the same as it did during the relationship. And I think, you know, a great example of that is Christmas. Um, and people can get very hung up on Christmas and Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. They're very important days and there would have been family rituals, et cetera, over those days during the course of the relationship. And I think it's accepting that, that that is going to look different moving forward. You know, it's not possible to keep everything the same, which can be quite tough. Yeah, really hard. It's a good opportunity to build new traditions, but that requires a lot of change. And, and it's so difficult for, for, for clients. You, as, you know, whether you've decided to divorce or wo- where, whether your spouse has instigated things, it's a huge period of change. It's a massive decision. It's one of the most traumatic life events that you can have. And then you're suddenly thrust into a position of having to make some really crucial decisions. It's really hard. How can you, um, maybe as a final point to finish on, we dealt with some of the legalities and, and, and the actual benefits of a first meeting and things. How can clients prepare themselves emotionally? How can they reduce the fear, you know, face the fear and, and do it anyway? What are some really good steps that get you in the right mindset to divorce as well as you can? I think you have to think of your divorce as a bit of a staircase. Um, and it's very easy to catastrophize and to look at everything that could possibly be at the top of that staircase and where that might lead and go down all sorts of rabbit holes that will ultimately make you very anxious, upset, um, angry, potentially, at all these options that probably actually won't happen, but you know that you're thinking about and worrying about. Whereas actually what you need to do is just take one step at a time. So what's the first step? on your staircase and that's what you need to concentrate on so if your first step is i need to issue my divorce my divorce petition my divorce application sorry (laughs) old old habits die hard i know it's really difficult isn't it or it might be that we're going to make a referral to mediation or we're going to sit down and have that conversation or i'm going to go and get legal advice you know take that first step and from that first step what's your next step and just do it one bit at a time i think would be my main advice with divorce what about you I mean I love that I talk a lot about processes as well but I like the staircase analogy um my number one cliche that all my clients get is uh when we're looking at more so finances than anything else the final result is something that you might not love but you can live with yeah because fundamentally what you're looking to do is negotiate a settlement if you have something you are desperately looking to achieve but your spouse is not going to give it to you, then either you've got to go all the way to a final hearing to try and get it and you might not get it, or you have to compromise and negotiate. And what the court is really looking to do in the vast majority of cases is to give both of you enough to move on with your lives and to make sure your children can move on with their lives. So being able to compromise, being able to negotiate, and being able to say, well, I might not get exactly what I want, but yeah, I can live with that and I'll be okay, is a really key mindset piece that I... I'm deeply on the original. I say it to every client and it's right in the vast majority of cases. Yeah, no, definitely. I, have, I say the same thing. It's all about finding something that you can stomach and that nobody nobody comes away from a divorce skipping um, into the sunset. So it's about finding something that you can stomach, that you can draw a line under it and you can move forward from it. And actually, once you've done that, the numbers become just somewhat irrelevant, really. 
um, as long as long as you've got that and you can move forward. What I wanted to just quickly run through with you then is as we're talking about divorces, I wanted to run through with you some divorce myths quickly. So okay. these are probably things that we hear quite a lot. Um, and it may well be the conversations in the pub or the Google um, searches are pulling these up. So I just wanted to run through them and you can perhaps give your sort of quick response to sort of each of them. Okay, cool. Yep. So the first one then is that a divorce always ends in a court battle. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And very few do. Um, I'd say fewer than 10% of my cases end up in court. And the ones that do end up in court, I think you can do court and do it well and still be civil to each other. I don't think there's mm-hmm. no any need in a lot of cases to have the fight. So there's no requirement that you end up in court tearing strips out of each other. So I would park that at the door. And if you go into it with the mindset that that's the way it's going to end up, then that is the way it'll end up. If you go into the mindset that we're going to try and do it with dignity and civility, then that can be achievable. What about divorce is always expensive? Um, I wouldn't say it's always expensive. Um, it can be a costly exercise. I'm not going to lie about that. Um, it links to the first point, though. If you make things a battle, it will be expensive. Um, if you can negotiate and compromise and work together with, you know, with your ex-partner, you can make things achievable. You've also got to look at what expensive means in any given case. Um, if you end up spending, you know, 50% of all your assets on legal fees, then yes, that's really expensive. Um, there are certain cases where it's worth spending what is you know, objectively, a large amount of money on legal fees. But if that is a if that creates a situation for you that gets you to the point that you can live with things, because otherwise, you know, your your ex-spouse just won't agree with what you basically need. It can be worth spending that money. So expense is a relative concept, but there are lots of ways of doing it to keep the cost down. And I always speak to clients about this. You know, try. You know, clients can do a lot themselves. We don't mm-hmm. have to be writing emails and letters to the side every week. It rarely helps. You know, when you're doing your disclosure, you can do a lot of it yourself. So it doesn't have to be if you go about things the right way with the right mindset. So what if I came to you, Matt, and I said that I would like a quickie divorce, like all the celebrities? Oh, I love the quickie divorce. <laughs> uh, the Daily Mail special. Um, <laughs> I, I would say that you're going to have to wait in line like everyone else. You've outlined the, the court time scales. You can't abridge the 20 uh, weeks and one day application process unless literally you can expedite a divorce if someone is literally on their deathbed there's some case law about that but aside from that there is no quickie divorce there is no click fingers and get things done you've got to go through the time frame it's not the quickest thing in the world but it's really important and important things are rarely quick so it does take a little bit of time but yeah sorry you can't be in the uh, sidebar of shame um, talking about a quickie divorce And then I've got two here that are a little bit linked. So the first one is assets are always shared equally. And the second one is that the parent with, you know, over speech parts custody always gets 60%. Okay, so no and no. Um, (laughs) Very quickly on assets. Um, The starting point in a lot of cases, if you're looking at anything more than a very short marriage, is normally a 50% split. But there are a whole variety of factors Um, called the Section 25 Factors, which empower the court to depart from that. The most important is the welfare of any minor child to make sure they've got home with mum and dad. After that, parties' needs, contributions and various other factors might lead to a departure from equality. So, you know, there is a sort of starting vague yardstick of equality, but you can depart from that in numerous cases. Uh, Equality also looks different in different cases. It's not necessarily 50% of the house and 50% of the pension and 50% of the savings. It might be 70% of one and 30% of the other. So that's a no on that one. Uh, With the children's stuff, there's no fixed regime for how 
children childcare works. It is what is in the best interest of the child, taking into account the various factors in the welfare checklist, which is at section one of the Children Act. If people really want to go digging about in statutes, those are there are the two most important parts of statutes that we consider on a day-to-day basis. Um, it's about meeting the children's needs, their educational needs, their emotional needs, their welfare, and to the degree to which they're old enough and sort of streetwise enough to be able to give it their wishes and feelings. So I would park those preconceived ideas. And just in general, getting hung up about percentages is a really bad way to go through a divorce. You know, people get fixated. And actually, it's the impact of what you get. This is what you were talking about earlier, Lisa. It's not getting fixated on a percentage for the sake of the percentage. It's making sure you're okay to go on and move on with your lives and the children are okay to move on with their lives. Great. Well, I think that was a perfect answer and probably a really great place for us to end this episode. So that's it for this episode of Stow Talks. Uh, Thanks for listening. If you would like any more information on our podcasts, head over to stowtalks.co.uk and please don't forget to rate, like, share and review this podcast where you can.